Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 9th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. An employer prevailed in a malicious prosecution action against an injured worker. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of George Patrick Johnston versus Sharon Kelly. Miguel Toro was employed as a milker by Rocking S. Dairy. George Patrick Johnson was the owner of the company. Toro was injured on the job and required surgery. Toro approached Sanchez, the dairy's foreman, after he'd been released to return to work with his paperwork, asking if he could come back to, this, to his job. Sanchez told Toro he needed to discuss the matter with the owner, George Johnson, who was on vacation. When Johnston returned from vacation, he found in his mail a notice from the EDD indicating Toro had applied for unemployment benefits and had quit his job. Thus, Johnson did not respond to his request to return to work. It was later determined that Toro still wanted his job back and said he quit just to obtain EDD benefits. The employer then negotiated a reinstatement agreement with Toro by way of union representatives that included a method of displacing other workers in order to reinstate Mr. Toro. Toro, however, did not return to work pursuant to this reinstatement agreement. Attorney Sharon Kelly and the firm of Frailing, Rockwell, Kelly, and Doritas are attorneys representing Miguel Toro. They filed a 132A application with the WCAB seeking penalties. After hearing on the 132A petition, the WCAB found in favor of the employer. After this victory, the employer and one of its owners filed a civil action against Kelly and her law firm for malicious prosecution and unfair competition. They alleged that right after the 132A application was filed, they explained to Toro's attorneys the circumstances surrounding the end of Toro's employment, including the fact that Johnston had agreed to reinstate Toro and did not terminate his employment. They supplied copies of written documents confirming Johnston's agreement with the union. The depositions of two union representatives corroborated the dairy's explanation. Nonetheless, Toro's attorneys continued to pursue the 132A allegedly to extort a settlement. The owner and employer responded to the suit with a special motion to strike, which the trial court denied. The defendant attorneys appealed the denial to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal, in the unpublished opinion of George Patrick Johnston versus Sharon Kelly, reversed the order denying the special motion to strike the causes of action for unfair competition, but sustained the denial of the motion for malicious prosecution. The special motion to strike was pursuant to California's anti-slap statute. Anti-slap special motions require a plaintiff to meet a burden of proof on a number of issues, including assuring that it is likely they will prevail on the merits of the case. The evidence established that it was likely that the employer would prevail in the malicious prosecution action, but did not establish that they would prevail in the unfair competition claim. The unfair competition cause of action is based on the initiation and pursuit of quasi-judicial proceedings. The litigation privilege applies and bars this cause of action. The order was reversed for both causes of action with respect to the owner, George Patrick Johnston, since there was no showing he would have been damaged by the 132A action against his company. 
This opinion clears the way for the employer to proceed to trial on the malicious prosecution case against the injured workers' attorneys. The WCAB continues to pursue the suspension of lean representative Daniel Escamilla. Last September, the appeals board sitting on Bank issued a notice that a hearing was scheduled to take evidence on whether or not it will suspend or remove Escamilla's privilege to appear in any proceeding before the appeals board or any workers' compensation administrative law judge. The allegations say that while acting as a hearing representative for various lien claimants, Mr. Escamilla has been repeatedly sanctioned for engaging in bad faith actions or tactics that are frivolous or solely intended to cause unnecessary delay. The reasons for those sanctions included Mr. Escamilla's willful failures to comply with statutory and regulatory obligations, disruption and delay of proceedings for an improper motive, and presenting arguments that were indisputably without merit. The notice alleged numerous examples of sanctions imposed upon Escamilla in different cases over the years. As a result of this history, the Appeals Board says that it has become apparent that sanctions are ineffective in causing Mr. Escamilla to conform his conduct to the Appeals Board rules of practice and procedure. But Mr. Escamilla, in propria persona, filed a petition for reconsideration of the notice of hearing. This week, the WCAB dismissed his reconsideration petition. Mr. Escamilla's petition for reconsideration was filed on November 7th, the last day on which a timely petition for reconsideration could have been filed was October 17th, and he was several weeks late. When the time to file a petition for reconsideration from this hypothetical final order expired, the WCAB lost jurisdiction to hear challenges to the order. Accordingly, dismissal of Mr. Escamilla's petition is required both because there was no final order and also because the petition was untimely. However, the WCAB continued to say that they would accept his document as a response to the charges. At this point, it is anticipated that the WCAB will issue some type of final order that defines the future of Mr. Escamilla to practice as a hearing representative. And now our fraud report. According to a new report from the Office of the Inspector General, more than one quarter of all durable medical equipment suppliers faced enforcement actions by CMS during their first year of Medicare participation. The report underscores that fraud and billing errors are rampant in Medicare and the durable medical equipment, prosthetics, orthotics, and supplies arena seems to be particularly ripe for fraud. The report says that DME suppliers have historically presented significant program integrity problems for Medicare, including fraudulent billing. DME includes items such as oxygen supplies, wheelchairs, power scooters, knee braces, prosthetic limbs, and surgical dressings. Medicare pays for durable medical equipment only when ordered by a doctor or, in some cases, a non-physician practitioner. In 2010, Medicare reimbursed $8.8 billion for DME. CMS contracts with the National Supplier Clearinghouse, or NSC, to handle DME payments. NSC is supposed to review applications and assign newly enrolled suppliers a risk rating based on assessment of the fraud risk. The risk rating determines how often the NSC conducts unannounced site visits. 
For its current study, investigators reviewed a sample of 229 new suppliers and found that 26% had their billing privileges revoked or were placed on prepayment claims review. 9% were placed on prepayment claims review for reasons such as billing for services not ordered by a doctor, having unusual billing patterns, and failing to respond to CMS or contractor requests for information. The report found that 4% omitted information on their applications about owner or manager criminal histories or adverse legal action including convictions for insurance fraud, theft by deception, and felony aggravated battery. The Inspector General concluded that its review indicates that additional security and scrutiny of risky, durable medical equipment applications is needed in order to prevent dishonest individuals from receiving Medicare payment. And in medical news, doctors in America are harboring an embarrassing secret. Many of them are going broke. This quiet reality, which is spreading nationwide, is claiming a wide range of casualties, including family physicians, cardiologists, and oncologists. Industry watchers say the trend is worrisome. Doctors list shrinking insurance reimbursements, changing regulations, rising business and drug costs, among the factors preventing them from keeping their practices afloat. Federal law requires that Medicare reimbursement rates be adjusted annually based on a formula tied to the health of the economy. The law says rates should be cut every year to keep Medicare financially sound. This year, doctors face an impending 27.4% Medicare pay cut. But Congress has blocked those cuts from happening 13 times over the past decade. Most recently, cuts were blocked on December 23rd, with a two-month temporary patch. This dilemma continues to haunt doctors every year. A senior executive with a hospital cancer center in Newport Beach says that physicians see no way out of the downward spiral of reimbursement, escalating costs of treating patients, and insurance companies deciding when and how much they will pay them. She gave many examples. Dr. Neil Barth, an oncologist with a stellar reputation, hasn't taken a salary from his private practice in over a year. According to U.S. News' top doctor's ranking, he has been in the top 10% of oncologists in his region. He owes drug companies $1.6 million and has not been reimbursed for these cancer-fighting drugs. And he is contemplating personal bankruptcy. That move could shutter his 31-year-old clinical practice and force 6,000 cancer patients to look for a new doctor. Changes in drug reimbursements have hurt him and other oncologists badly. The number of new prescription drug shortages in 2011 shot up to 267, well above the prior record and about four times the number of medication shortages in the middle of the last decade. Information just released by the University of Utah Drug Information Service says there were 56 more newly reported drug shortages in the U.S. than in the prior year. As the drug shortages worsen, so does their impact on patient care, particularly in hospitals. The inability to get crucial medicines has disrupted chemotherapy, surgery, and care for patients with infections and pain. 
At least 15 deaths since 2010 have been blamed on the shortages, which have set a record high in each of the last five years. Some of the more recently reported shortages are very difficult for hospital pharmacists and other staffs to manage. Shortages include sedatives wide, widely used in surgery, including Valium, Versed, and Lorazepam. Another big problem is the recent shortage of the opioid painkiller fentanyl. The FDA says the main reason for the shortages is manufacturing deficiencies leading to production shutdowns. Other reasons include companies ending production of some drugs with tiny profit margins, consolidation in the gener generic drug industry, and limited supplies of some ingredients. The shortages have led to unprecedented high price gouging with hospitals, sometimes having to pay outrageous markups for scarce drugs. In one case, a vendor outside the normal supply chain offered to sell a hospital a vial of a cancer drug that normally costs about $12 for more than $990. That case is among those under investigation by Congress. The FDA and several members of Congress have been holding hearings since September to identify reasons for and possible solutions to the shortages. And in financial news, there is widespread concern about the potential adverse impact on workers' compensation loss costs as the baby boomers postpone retirement and accelerate the aging of the workforce. In a newly published 46-page study, the National Council on Compensation Insurance, or NCCI, has examined this issue and offers some surprising and yet reassuring conclusions. Despite an increasing number of aging U.S. workers, older employees have had a smaller-than-expected effect on workers' compensation loss costs. NCCI said that these are reassuring findings in that an aging workforce may have a less negative impact on loss costs per worker than originally thought. Workers 45 and older account for an increasing share of the U.S. workforce. The share of workers 55 to 64 has been growing steadily, while the share of workers 45 to 54 has seen only a modest increase. The share of workers 65 and older is growing, but remains small. They were about 3% in 2000 and less than 5% in 2010. NCCI found similar average loss costs for all age groups of workers' age is 35 to 64. Additionally, claim frequency has declined across all age groups in the last several years as workplaces generally have become safer. However, medical and indemnity claim severity for workers' ages 45 to 64 was more than 50% higher than claim severity for the study's youngest workers ages 20 to 34. The long-standing tenet that younger workers have much higher injury rates is no longer true. Therefore, differences in loss costs by age in recent years primarily reflect differences in severities since differences in frequency by age have virtually disappeared. Older workers tend to have more rotator cuff and knee injuries, while younger workers have more back and ankle sprains. On the indemnity side, higher wages are a key factor leading to higher costs for older workers. For medical costs, more treatments per claim are a material factor. 
And in other news, 971 state compensation insurance fund employees took an unusual severance package in December. This was slightly more than half of the 1,800 employees in 26 job classifications slated for elimination that could have taken the deal at an estimated cost of up to $50 million to the state fund. Employees with less than seven years at state fund would receive a payment equal to four months of gross salary plus $6,000 for lost benefits. Employees who took the severance package waived their rights to preferential treatment for hiring into other state jobs and probably are not eligible for unemployment insurance benefits. Civil service rules do not require severance pay and the state fund severance agreement was the first of its kind for a California state agency. But the state fund was confronted by the SEIU for prodding some of its members to relocate ostensibly saving their jobs without telling them in advance that they would be laid off anyway. The state fund will now proceed to eliminate 484 jobs in the Bay Area by April. The hardest hit locations will be Pleasanton, where 256 jobs will be eliminated, and Vacaville, which will lose 130. 36 jobs will be cut in San Jose, while the Santa Rosa area will lose 60 and Stockton will lose 57. Most of the eliminated positions are office and clerical jobs. Applicant attorney Jose Gonzalez, a partner with the firm of Berman Moore Gonzalez in Santa Ana, has been elected president of the Orange County Hispanic Bar Association. The formal installation of the 2012 board is set for March 3rd at the Disney Grand Californian Hotel. He is currently a member of the Orange County Bar Association Board of Directors and has been co-chair of the workers' compensation section for the past two years. He practices workers' compensation and personal injury law. Mr. Gonzalez is married and with two daughters. He was born in Los Angeles and moved to Orange as a child. He spoke only Spanish until the third grade. Now a partner, Gonzalez joined his firm in 1992 as a part-time file clerk later becoming a legal assistant and representing clients in administrative law court. The then firm partners encouraged him to consider law as a career. And as a result, he attended law school in Santa Ana at Trinity Law School full-time while continuing to work full-time as well. He was admitted to the state bar in 2005. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily. For news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.